Thank you for joining IRW Coffee Break. This is a podcast hosted by the KPMG IRW specialists within Washington National Tax to discuss current topics in the field of information reporting and withholding. Every episode will discuss a discrete area of interest in a short 10-minute segment. These segments aren't intended to be a comprehensive discussion of law, but rather are intended to be a quick knowledge update or a refresher that you can fit in over a break. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee, fit in an afternoon stretch, or just get comfortable while we explore all things IRW. Hi, I'm Danielle Nishida, and I'm joined today by Lori Hatton-Boyd. Today, we will be continuing our discussion of the IRW impacts of the proposed changes to law discussed in the Biden administration's Green Book released on May 28th that we began in Episode 1. As a reminder, the Green Book is the president's proposed changes to the Internal Revenue Code for the upcoming fiscal year. And again, these proposals may not be adopted into law, but are significant as they reflect the administration's priorities for the upcoming year. In our last episode, we talked about the changes with respect to the enhanced reporting and the changes that they're intending with respect to crypto reporting and some of the reciprocal FATCA reporting related to crypto. In this episode, we're going to go into some of the proposed changes with respect to carried interest, forums W-9, and electronic filing. The first topic, carried interest, and for those of you who are not familiar with it, carried interest, also known as profits interest or promote in the real estate field, refers to the share of profits that a general partner is provided as compensation for the services performed by the partner on behalf of the partnership. If you really just think about what's being provided without looking at the tax code, that sounds an awful lot like it should be treated as services, right? Because it's a compensation being provided to the partner in exchange for the services provided by the partner. However, the tax code treats carried interest as gains. There have been recent changes to the rules in the past few years addressing whether those gains would be treated as long-term or short-term gains. But in either case, they're treated as gains, which means they're out of the scope from an IRW perspective because they don't fall within FIDAP income. However, the Biden administration proposal discusses recharacterizing carried interest and taxing it as ordinary income and also subjecting it to employment tax. They haven't outright said that they're going to recharacterize it as services income, but all of that put together does sound an awful lot like they're heading in that direction. If they were to do that, suddenly carried interest would be FEDAP income and potentially in scope for Chapter 3 and Chapter 4 withholding. Now, practically speaking, that may not have a huge impact on withholding because in most cases, if you have a foreign partner performing services, they're likely going to be performing them out of the country. And so the income would be foreign source. But pursuant to the rule that you have to get documentation to establish that the person is performing services out of the United States or otherwise be stuck with the presumption rule that it's U.S. source income, this means there'd be substantially more documentation that would have to be collected because without that documentation, the default is to presume that it's U.S. source income and that would be subject to the 30% withholding. Yeah, Danielle, and I think that's a really significant point because what we're seeing the IRS do on exam is really making sure that those certifications that all services have been performed outside the United States are on file and they are applying those presumption rules where they aren't. So it's going to be really important that partnerships get that certification from that partner so that they don't have to deal with that on exam and having the IRS asserting those liabilities on them for not having that certification. And if this becomes law and it ends up being treated as services income, this is important because we see a lot of withholding agents forgetting to get that statement. You may think that you've got a foreign partner that is living abroad 
and practically speaking, they must be performing the services abroad, but the rule does not allow you to use that sort of common sense. The rule forces you into a prove out approach where you have to have the documentation to prove out of withholding. That's exactly right. And what the IRS is looking for is something in a contract or a statement of work. And obviously, we're not going to have those in this case. So it's going to have to be an actual certification that they're going to provide along with their tax form. Shifting gears here a little bit, one of the other proposals in that green book has to do with the W-9. So as the rules are now, a payor that's making a reportable payment to a U.S. person has to get that U.S. person's TIN in the manner required. In the financial world, for payments of interest, dividends, and proceeds on the sale of securities, that rule would require a TIN that is provided under penalties of perjury. So that means it has to be provided on a Form W-9. That is not the rule in the non-financial world. In the non-financial world, they just need to get the TIN. So again, it doesn't have to be under penalties of perjury, so it doesn't have to be on a W-9. The proposal in the Green Book would change this, and a W-9 would be required any time a payor is making a reportable payment to a U.S. person. So this is really a significant change if this proposal goes through for the non-financial world, because that means they need to go get a W-9 from every U.S. vendor that they're paying. They don't have processes for this, and it leads to a couple interesting things. First, the proposal doesn't show any grandfather rule, and the effective date, if this was passed in short order is for any payments after December 31st of this year. So that means they have a very short window to go get all of these W-9s or they would have to start imposing backup withholding after that date. I think the other issue that a non-financial is going to have is that they already have the TIN and it's in their system. There's been a policy shift for a lot of payors that are making these payments where they are now obtaining W-9s even when they didn't need to. But in their systems, it's just going to show the TIN and they're not going to know whether it was obtained on a W-9 or orally or some other method. So they're going to have to actually do this paper search to figure that out so that then they can go solicit a W-9 for those accounts or those payees where they don't have one. And as a reminder for our listeners, the reason they may not know whether they've collected a TIN or a W-9 in the first place is because when you collect a Form W-9, you're only required to hang on to it for a period of three years. After that, you can dispose of the form itself as long as you maintain the information in your records. So your records will simply have the name and the TIN, and it'll look exactly the same as a scenario where you didn't collect the W-9. One final point from my perspective is that in the Green Book, it says that this proposal is necessary to enhance compliance. And I have never seen anything out there about the differences between payors making financial payments versus non-financial payments and the number of items that they receive on a B notice to really solidify that this is a problem, that those TINs are not correct when they're not obtained on a W-9. So I guess we'll see where this leads us. And it's curious that they went the route of requiring a Form W-9 for two reasons. You know, I do believe the W-9 can enhance compliance for people who make mistakes. For example, it includes the disregarded entity line, so you don't have a mix-up of names. It requires you to put your legal name on the form. People take it a little more seriously when they're completing the name form because they're signing under penalties of perjury. So there is an element there where you may have a more careful and thought out process than you would if you were just providing a TIN. However, for somebody who's really trying to evade tax, if they're committed to lying on their tax returns, they're pretty much going to lie on a Form W-9. I don't think that's a deterrent. So all you're cleaning up are the inadvertent errors. 
As an alternative, relying on TIN matching in lieu of the Form W-9 would seem to catch all of the errors, both the inadvertent ones and the deliberate ones. And I find it curious that the government chose to go with the Form W-9 instead of mandating TIN matching. The only thing I can think on this is they didn't want to mandate it because it would also require people outside of the United States to then rely on TIN matching. And I know the government is really sensitive about even confirming TIN information offshore, but at a minimum, it would seem that if somebody is doing TIN matching today, that should be an alternative to getting a Form W-9 because they're already ensuring that they have a correct match in the IRS's systems. It seems superfluous at that point to make them go out and get a W-9 when they're reporting should be accurate. To your point about the non-U.S. filers, it seems like they could have a rule where they would allow those persons to use TIN matching if they're required to file electronically, which means they're over that 250 limit right now, because that way they know they're a legitimate filer. And if they're under that number, then to go out and get the W-9s, they don't have this massive vendor base. So that would be workable. And I think it's important to note, this is just the proposal to the statute, giving the IRS the authority. Depending on how the statute's drafted, we would expect the IRS and Treasury to have the authority to add in a grandfathering provision, at least with respect to those withholding agents who have not had any B notices for their payees, or to also allow a TIN matching carve out. So all of this is possible when they're actually implementing the regs. But right now, we don't see any of that. We're seeing just a blanket proposal for a Form W-9 requirement, which seems a little extreme. Yep, I agree. Hopefully, if this does get passed, we would see that kind of relief from the IRS through regulations. The last issue we wanted to talk about today is right in line with that, with e-filing. We do see in the proposal some changes for e-filing, and there's several information returns that are proposed to now be required to be filed electronically. In the space for Chapter 3 and 4, we see that the Form 1042 would be required to be e-filed should this proposal be passed. And that's significant because right now all Forms 1042 are snail mailed, even if you are doing your 1042Ss electronically. That's a big shift, but at the same time, I do think it's somewhat expected because the IRS is consistently moving towards making everything electronically filed, if possible. One thing I wanted to note while we're on the topic of electronic filings, this isn't in the Biden administration proposal, but it is on topic with 1042s and e-filing. I wanted to note that for the tax year 2020, partnerships that had more than 100 partners or that were required to file 100 or more information returns were required to file their Forms 1042-S electronically. We noticed this year that the Form 1042-S instructions for 2021 removed the e-filing requirement for partnerships. So all that remains in the instructions right now is a requirement that all financial institutions file electronically and all filers with 250 or more returns file electronically. But there is no special rule for partnerships. Interestingly, the Form 1187, which was just posted in May of 2021, still contains the rule for partnerships and actually indicates that for 2021, they would be reducing the threshold so that now it would be all partnerships with more than 100 partners and partnerships that are required to file at least 50 returns. So the 1187 seems to contradict the information in the 1042S. And it's hard to figure out what to make of that. But Lori, I believe you were just on a panel with a government official where they addressed this point. Yeah, that's exactly right. And what we were told is that Treasury and the IRS believes that the statute that had that change for partnerships having to e-file at the lower rate is not self-executing. So until we see regulations on that, the normal rules are going to apply. 
And so that's why they removed that provision out of the instructions for the Form 1042S. One thing I'd like to wrap up with on this is we recently saw a change with respect to obtaining the transmittal control code, the TCC, and that's what's needed to actually e-file the information returns in the IRS FIRE system. And instead of filing a form to get that TCC, they're now matching up the application with their secure access account system. And I think this is going to cause a huge problem outside the United States. That secure access account system requires a social security number or an ITIN. You have to provide your tax filing status. Not sure what you would do if you're a non-U.S. person and don't have a U.S. tax filing status. You have to provide a financial account. We know that the routing codes are not the same outside the United States, so I'm not sure how that's going to work. And then a big problem is you need a U.S.-based cell phone number in the name of the applicant. And that's so that they can send a code, the authorization code. So if you don't have that, they indicate that they'll mail you this code. The problem is the code's only good for 30 days. So we know that when the IRS mails things to offshore, it takes much longer for that piece of mail to reach the foreign person and go through their system and actually get to the right person. So I think this is going to be a big issue, and I think one that the IRS is going to have to address. And with that, that concludes our discussion regarding the IRW changes to the Biden Green Book. Thank you for listening to this episode of IRW Coffee Break. We would love to hear from you. If you have comments on this podcast or have ideas about topics for a future podcast, you can email us using the podcast feedback button on the webcast page. We hope you can join us again soon. 